Humans to Mars, and a supernova extinction. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Last week, scientists, engineers, and visionaries met at the annual Humans to Mars Summit, outlying current challenges and technological breakthroughs and developing a plan for how to live on the Red Planet. We Martians podcast host Jake Robbins attended the virtual summit and joins us to talk about his takeaways from the conference, like conversations about diversity and inclusion in deep space exploration and the expanded role robots will be playing in getting us to Mars. Then is an ancient supernova to blame for one of Earth's earliest extinction events. We'll chat with our panel of expert scientists from UCF this week to talk about a new paper that argues a star's death could have some collateral damage here on Earth. That's ahead, but first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. NASA tested the solid rocket booster that will help send humans to the moon in the second half of the 2020s. Three, two, one, fire. Two of these solid rocket boosters will help launch NASA's SLS rocket from Kennedy Space Center, producing 75% of the rocket's 9 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. SLS will launch NASA's Orion capsule on trips to the moon, first an uncrewed mission late next year, followed by two crewed missions. The third mission calls for two astronauts to step foot on the lunar surface. The test last week of the Northrop Grumman-built booster in Utah will help engineers and designers make changes for future Artemis missions. The test was a success, with the booster firing for more than two minutes. NASA's moon program and SLS rocket have faced increased scrutiny since the rocket is behind schedule and over budget, now estimated to cost more than $9 billion. You can find more space news stories online. Visit wmfe.org space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Last week, Explore Mars presented its annual Humans to Mars Summit, bringing scientists, engineers, and visionaries to a virtual forum to discuss the challenges of getting to Mars and the technological advances supporting that ambitious goal. We Martian podcast host Jake Robbins attended the conference and joins us now to talk about his four takeaways from the summit. Jake, thanks for speaking with us. Hey, it's always a pleasure. Well, Jake, one of the things that you outlined um, that you took away from the Humans to Mars Summit was discussions about inclusive space, um, about race and gender uh, equity. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the conversations that were had uh, last week. Yeah, so the uh, the conference organizers, the Explore Mars organization, did a really great job this year of creating a platform that was really inclusive and welcoming to uh, especially those two areas where you know, the aerospace world needs a lot of work, uh, gender and race. Um, you know, on the race side, they had a great panel with former NASA administrator uh, Charlie Bolden and a bunch of other um, really great guests. And just talking about sort of um, the realities of, of someone like that, uh, trying to go through a career in the space world. Um, so there were some really, you know, uplifting and really inspiring stories about uh, overcoming some of these challenges that they should never have to have uh, overcome. Uh, even, you know, Charlie Bolden is a great example of someone who who climbed to the top, was literally in charge of all NASA. And some of the stuff that he had to do was just really, uh, it was startling and really, you know, 
it's just it's tough to listen to in some cases, but also just it was really nice to have that conversation on the main stage, kind of, you know, in front of everyone to make sure that this is an issue that we are tackling with full strength head on. Right. Um, so that was really great to see. There was another panel on uh, women in aerospace, which, again, was a, another um, an area where, where STEM needs some work. And uh, the same sorts of things, you know, hearing a lot of uh, stories about representation, how important it is to have uh, role models who look like you in, in positions of power um, and, you know, in positions of, of, of interest across the space world. So, um, yeah, I just I, it was something that really stood out to me is that uh, Explore Mars did an awesome job of just really putting this front and center and diversifying their programming and making sure that this was an event that was inclusive to everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, you know, as we've been talking about putting humans on Mars now, I mean, we're, we're getting closer and closer to that that point. You know, 2030s is, is kind of the, the working uh, goalpost for that one right now. Um, but it, it's more about just making sure that, you know, future Mars scientists or colonists are are diverse, right? It's it's the people supporting those missions as well. And, and that's right. Yeah. And, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, when the, when the day finally comes that we send people to Mars, um, what does that first group look like? Are they representative of the human race? Are they are something that you know everyone across the globe can look up to and say, "Wow, this represents us as people"? Or is it going to be more of a smaller, more exclusive group that represents maybe wealthy people or privileged people or all those kinds of things? Right? Those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. And so, getting that kind of on the conversation docket right now is such an important thing to do. Mm-hmm. Are you optimistic for that future? I mean, after hearing some of these things that were brought up at uh, the Humans to Mars panels, uh, do you think that that not only do we have the motivation to do that, but it'll actually happen? That's the age old question. Um, you know, it's uh, any kind of social change like that. It always feels like it goes excruciatingly slow and never feels like it's fast enough. Um, but then sometimes you can look back on 10, 20 years and say, hey, we actually have made progress. So um, I, I probably won't be the, the right judge of this. I'm just a, a privileged uh, white guy myself. And so, you know, the world's my oyster in some cases. And so we have to kind of make sure we keep talking about these issues with the people who are facing those challenges to ensure that uh, we are taking in their concerns and, and all that sort of stuff. Another topic, Jake, that you highlighted uh, from this uh, this summit was uh, technology development by NASA with industry help. Um, what was kind of uh, spotlighted uh, in this realm uh, at this conference? Well, I think what I took away from um, some of the work that NASA was doing is that they have they have a lot of departments and, and groups that sort of are just outside the limelight. Um, we hear a lot about uh, the really high profile NASA stuff. You know, the SpaceX launch of Crew this summer was a big highlight event. The Perseverance rover to Mars was a highlight event. We hear about that in the news quite a bit. But in the various NASA centers across the country, there is a lot of really cool work going on, sort of laying the groundwork for technology that we will probably need when we finally get to Mars. Um, So some of the examples were uh, life support systems that can take crew on a three-year mission away from Earth. You know, we're, we're practicing um, in low Earth orbit at the International Space Station where we have people taking six-month missions, but they're getting constantly resupplied from Earth, you know, every 
few weeks. They're able to come home at a moment's notice if there's an emergency. All those kinds of things are a little bit different than a Mars mission where they're off and we just won't see them for a very long time. And so the technology for life support is uh, an important thing that they're working on. Um, Entry, descent, and landing, which is sort of the, the process by which we go from space to the surface of Mars and you have to slow down quite a bit and get down to the ground with a very large payload. So, um, you know, some of the NASA representatives were talking about if you think about Curiosity, the rover, which is a one-ton rover, we need to multiply that by about a factor of 20 in order to really um, have the right materials to have a human expedition. So getting into the atmosphere is a whole different ballgame. The parachutes aren't going to work. The heat shields are too small, all that sort of stuff. NASA's working on that. They're they're building that technology now to try and solve those problems. Um, surface power was one that came up. So how do you power rovers and tools and habitats and and you know pulling resources out of the ground? How do you do all that when on Mars you've got solar panels that are... <clears throat> excuse me, uh, on Mars, you've got solar panels that are farther away from the sun. So they're generating less power. There's dust in the air covering them up. That's a big problem. Uh, they're working on nuclear reactors to power those surface operations. So this is stuff that I kind of had heard that they'd been working on, but had never really got into the details of it. And it was really cool to see that, uh, they were really, um, they're still chewing on that. They're really kind of uh, knocking off the, uh, the, the task list to get sure that's ready when we're ready to go. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, having to live, you know, you know, on a three year journey, um, not being able to resupply stuff. I know NASA talks about this, but I'm wondering if there was kind of talk throughout, um, you know, more widespread uh, players at this conference about utilizing the moon as a way to kind of test this, these technologies and and test basically human beings uh, living in deep space for an extended period of time before going to Mars. I mean, is, is that kind of the plan still going forward? Let's let's camp at the moon before we send people to Mars. Yeah, and that's the that's the age old question with uh, humans to Mars is uh, do you use the moon as a stopping ground uh, or do you just go straight there? Um, Explore Mars has tried to bring in the lunar community of late, um, you know, mostly because the the political winds are shifting a little bit towards the moon. Uh, NASA's embarking on this new Artemis program that's all about uh, taking humans back to the surface of the moon. Um, and so my my personal take on it is that there there is a lot of stuff we can do at the moon to uh, you know, what they, what they call buying down risk, right? And so it's not a perfect analog for Mars, but if you gain a bunch of experience walking around the surface of the moon, some of that will carry forward to making you better at, and more prepared for walking around the surface of Mars. Um, going to a place that's three days away from Earth is a little bit better than going to a place that's three hours away from Earth. It's not quite the same, but you can still get some useful experience from there. And that seems to be what NASA's uh, interested in doing. Uh, the industry partners, of course, are are all game. They'll they'll go wherever you point uh, and pay. So um, that's kind of, you know, <laughs> what they're interested in. But yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of talk about how do we leverage the moon um, in a way that, that helps us get to Mars without necessarily you know, slowing us down and just getting stuck on the moon and never actually going any further, right? That's the, that's the tough part. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some of these, this new tech that's under development um, for life support. Um, and I know from talking to you about current Mars missions, um, there is a tech demonstration of life support on the current uh, NASA rover, right? MOXIE, about, you know, making oxygen um, on on Mars. Uh, kind of tell us a little bit about that and um, some of the things that are actually happening right now with this tech development that's being tested. Yeah, so Moxie's a great example of a, a, 
um, really trying to get some cutting edge technology. So that's literally the process of pulling um, carbon dioxide out of the Martian atmosphere and turning that into oxygen so that you can use it on the surface. That's um, some really cool, you know, bleeding edge technology that we need to get better at. Um, but closer to home and a more um, realistic kind of uh, closer to a, a technological readiness level that we can use on a mission, um, the space station is is that example. So um, I talked to uh, uh, Robin Gatens, who's the acting director of the ISS uh, and who was a part of this conference. And she told me all about how, um, you know, they're close to what's called closing the loop, which is where you have a whole bunch of, uh, uh, you know, carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere and all of it's coming back out as oxygen. You get a hundred percent recycle rate. That's closing the loop. They're, they're pretty close in terms of water. Um, they're able to, uh, uh, get something like 90, 95% of that today. And they're going to be able to, she said, we're going to be able to close that loop by next year with some improvements they're making on the ISS. The oxygen is the tougher part. They're only at about 50% today. So, uh, they do have to, you know, bring up more oxygen to, uh, to, to help the astronauts live. Um, and so that's kind of the, the challenges they're really tackling over the next few years to try and get that a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. Um, a third point, uh, a third takeaway from you, Jake, was uh, the use of robots as precursors to humans. Uh, what was this conversation like? Because, I mean, we already have a, an armada of robots heading there now. Uh, what's the future like for robotic explorers before uh, humans can get there? Yeah, well, there's sort of two parts to that, right? So you've got the stuff that we have today, like the rovers and the landers on Mars, and they have their own missions. They're there to do science and kind of explore on their own. Um, but we do learn some things from flying those missions. We learn about uh, automation. We learn about entry, descent, and landing. Uh, we learn about just how do the, the spacecraft operate in those crazy environments on Mars, which is a crazy thermal environment. It's a crazy dust environment. It's a pretty crazy place. Um, and so we learn some of, of that from these robots. And then there's probably going to be some sort of middle stage before people are walking where we're sending stuff in advance of a human mission. Uh, and because it will be uncrewed, it is, you know, by definition robotic, you're going to have things like habitats that are going to land and probably in some way set themselves up into some way that we can walk into them. Uh, maybe in situ resource utilization, which is the process of, you know, like, just like we talked about Moxie pulling oxygen out of the air, or maybe pulling water out of the ground. Um, you could have robots that are setting up surface power stations in order to power these habitats, all that kind of stuff. If you can automate it, you can reduce the cost and you can reduce the risk of uh, sending people out there so that when we finally arrive, we can just kind of step into this base that it's all ready to go. And so there are a lot of discussions around, you know, what is the relationship between robots and humans? How much can we do ahead of time? What are the challenges to that? And, uh, you know, what are the next steps to get that going? So it's pretty fascinating conversation. Mm-hmm. And policy issues always come up at um, at these uh, conferences and summits. Um, what are some of the policy issues that that these visionaries and, and thinkers uh, have on on the top of mind when it comes to putting humans on Mars? Yeah, policy is always the tricky one. I, I, I in my coverage, I called it the insidious challenge to getting um, humans to Mars. So I, I talked to Marcia Smith, who is a, a fantastic journalist who's been covering space policy for. Um, not to date her, but I think as long as I've been alive. So um, she's <laughs> yes. just the, the, the expert on this. Uh, and she, she did a, a great sort of rundown for me to sort of explain the difference between policy and implementation. So policy is sort of like, what are we going to do? And the policy for Humans to Mars has actually been pretty 
static for a while. We've always said that we've wanted to go further out, either back to the moon or to, and then on to Mars or straight to Mars. But Mars has kind of always been that horizon goal, and everyone sort of agrees on that. But the implementation, which is the details, how do we do it? How fast do we do it? In what manner do we do it? With whom do we do it? Those are all the sticky details that we continually get stuck in. And so um, there was a good conversation with some congressional staffers around sort of how do you sort those details out? Um, to me, there's there's always been this sort of uh, uh, tension within the Mars community. Um, there are a lot of different groups that want to go to Mars. Um, I did some some kind of casual research on this just for some some interviews and some polling and stuff to say, like, you know, why do you want to send people to Mars? What's important to you? And the diversity of answers I got was astounding. There were, you know, I think I was able to categorize them into like a 12 different groups of like, oh, wow. like big groups. Of, of, of people that want to go, you know, I want to go to do science or I want to go because it's uh, an inspiring thing that can inspire the next generation. I want to go because it'll develop cool technology that will help Earth. I want to go because it will make sure that my country is in, in the lead of space and, and pressing its values uh, to everyone else. There's just like all these different reasons. And I think the big challenge, and this is kind of what Explore Mars is trying to do, is how do we get all those groups to come together and agree on sort of a way that we're going to do it. Because if you want to go to do science, the the implementation that you're going to have is going to be very different than if you want to go to, um, you know, plant your flag and then take off again. That's like, those are just completely different missions, even though they both involve sending people to Mars. So this conference, I was really watching that, you know, which groups are here and which aren't. And I think Explore Mars did a good job of creating a platform where kind of, you know, like I said, everyone was welcome, but I don't think all the groups were there yet. And that's sort of what was indicative of me to of like, you know, how close are we to actually getting this done? I thought there was not very much representation from the science community. Um, international partners were not super well represented there. Um, and then some of the newer space companies that, you know, we think of as the forefront of this, uh, SpaceX is the big one I'm thinking about. They've got this giant rocket under development. They didn't have a huge presence at this conference either. And so what I'm asking myself is, are we, you know, here we're on this, are we there yet podcast? Are we there yet in terms of getting all these groups together in a consensus? And I'm not quite sure we are yet. We've got more work to do to take in all these concerns and, and, boil it down into something that says this solution of implementation solves for everybody. And this is the one that's going to win and actually get us there. Mm -hmm. Finally, Jake, I mean, do you think that because of the way that we have been meeting and having these conversations now, you know, especially in 2020 this year in the age of, of, you know, a global pandemic that the platforms have kind of been leveled and we can all meet together and, and things will get better. Uh, or is it more of a, it's not really a logistics issue, but more of a ideological issue of getting all of these people on the same stage. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, that's kind of just the that's the ultimate question is how do you how do you get them together? How do you make it in a way that that people can agree on everything? Um, COVID has certainly changed a lot about how we meet today. Um, that's very obvious. This, this whole uh, conference was of course, virtual, you know, I got to attend it from my, my desk right here. Um, and I don't think we understand fully the effects of this pandemic on 
everything. I think we're still very early in the what is COVID going to do to people, um, you know, long term to our culture, to our society, how we interact with each other, how our governments treat things. Uh, there's going to be a massive budget crisis that comes out of this. Um, we've all been spending a lot of money to try and keep things afloat for the last six months. Um, and so there's there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknowns sort of to shake out from this. So I don't know if I have a good answer to that question. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's to be seen yet. Um, what I, what I do find hopeful is that, um, this conference did do a great job of, of being inspiration. There were just a lot of good stories. There was, is a feel good conference. Um, you came out of it with, uh, attendees even that were from all around the world and, and have interest in this. We know that sending people to Mars is, something that will go down in history as like the journey of humanity. It will blow the Apollo moon landings out of the water in terms of how, um, you know, important they are to our history. Um, so that interest is there. We just need to find a way to solidify it into some sort of consensus. And that is sort of the key. Mm -hmm. Well, we've been speaking with Jake Robbins. He's the host of the We Martians podcast and also co-host the Off Nominal podcast, Jake, thank you so much for speaking with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Still to come, did an ancient supernova cause a mass extinction here on Earth? Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Is an ancient supernova to blame for one of Earth's earliest extinction events? A new paper argues a star's death could have had some collateral damage here on Earth. Here to break it down on this week's I'd Like to Know segment is our panel of expert scientists, UCF's Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The idea is that um, if a supernova goes off very close to the Earth, uh, within about 25 light years or so, the radiation produced from that can be uh, directly um, damaging to life on Earth. This is suggesting that some supernovas went off uh, a little bit further away from that, but produced enough high energy radiation to, over a period of tens of thousands of years, damage the ozone layer in the Earth's atmosphere, which would then allow more ultraviolet light to come in from the sun, which itself would then lead to mutations and damage uh, the ecosystem and lead to some mass extinctions. So it's kind of an interesting hypothesis. And so it's not like this this star goes supernova and there's this crazy explosion and then everything dies on Earth, right? It's this kind of slow death. It is, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't so know these... which, one is, uh, which one is scarier. If it's really close, everybody dies right away. If it's far away, everybody dies over tens of thousands of years. Both terrifying. So... What's the evidence behind this? I mean, how do, how do we know this actually happened? I was just going to say we don't, right? So this is the this is kind of a, a a plausibility argument that is there were these extinction events. What is it, three hundred some odd million years ago that we didn't know the reason for? Uh, and this paper is an argument that a very plausible core, uh, cause of the extinctions could be these a supernova or a series of supernovas, you know, sixty or sixty five light years away or something like that that could have caused this. Uh, there is some evidence that that would leave behind, right? Some, you know, supernovas tend to produce uh, weird isotopes of uh, elements that you would not normally see on the surface of the Earth. And so it's conceivable. What are isotopes, Jim? Isotopes are versions of elements that are have different numbers of neutrons than the normal version, 
These can be radioactive things that are just very rare in, in Earth's crust naturally, but are produced in supernovas. And so it's possible we could find evidence for that. It's challenging because this is still a very long time ago, 300 some odd million years ago. It's, it's challenging to find, you know, you have to get down to the rock layer that is that old in order to test whether these things are there. And I don't think that hasn't been done, but it's at least a plausible explanation. I will say one of the one of the articles we read about this and one of the authors had one of the best analogies uh, I've heard in a long time. Um, I've seen in a long time, which was that. Uh, so like we're looking for these specific radioactive isotopes and they actually decay over time. So if you find them, you know that they're relatively newer or that they're not originally from the Earth because they're, they, they must have, be here more recently because otherwise they'd all be gone. And they, they, it was, the analogy was green bananas. If you see green bananas in the middle of the country in the US, you know that they're fresh. Um, so they probably weren't, they didn't grow there. Uh, but if you see uh, ripe bananas, that's more typical, right? But green bananas means they, they're fresh and new. And so, th so those particular uh, radioactive isotopic signatures Jim and, and Addie were, were referring to have not been seen. So we don't actually have the smoking gun or burning isotope evidence uh, of this particular event taking place. And the, the mass extinction took place sort of different than the one associated with the asteroid impact 65 million years ago. This was a gradual reduction in biodiversity over a couple of different events uh, 360 to 410 million years ago or so. And there is evidence that there was a reduction in the ozone layer. And previous theories have hypothesized that that was probably driven by things going on from the Earth at changes in the in the Earth's climate that led to a reduction in ozone. And, and this paper is pointing out that, well, actually, there's a astrophysical mechanism that could, could lead to that ozone uh, reduction. So, so do we have to worry about this? I mean, you, you, you brought up, you know, uh, climate change and, and that could have had a, you know, an impact from this. Do we need to worry about, you know, human climate change or human causes of climate change and these bursts of radioactive material pelting us throughout our history? I, I don't know. Put it into perspective. Am I going to die from this? or <laughs> Mostly you need to worry about human caused climate change. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's much yeah. more, it's, I mean, that's ongoing and, and uh, much more imminently going to affect us. Uh, these big supernova events are not going to happen near us very often at all. Yeah, and in point of fact, as Eddie was saying, they're not going to, because there aren't any stars that are going to go supernova within 65 light years of us, or even 100 right. light years of us. Uh, and, and when they uh, do... And if Betelgeuse went supernova, we'd be fine. Yeah. We're fine. That's like 600 light years away or something. So we're okay. There, there don't happen to be any very large star. You know, you need a really big star to go supernova. There don't happen to be any really big uh, stars that close to us right now. Now, stars move around. So if you live long enough, then uh, you may get to see this. But long enough means hundreds but also of the, the It's not the light from the supernova that is doing this damage in this particular case for this sort of not super mm. close, but close enough kind of thing. It's particles that are um, accelerated by the later interaction of the explosion with the surrounding gas around the supernova. So we would even see the flash of the exploding star before this damaging radiation came in and started uh, messing with the ozone layer. We could deploy our radiation protection nets in orbit around Earth if it happened. <laughs> and if, if it were to happen with a star closer to us like our own sun, we'd have other issues to worry about, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, there's going to be no point in worrying if it happened with our own son. <laughs> worrying would serve yeah. no purpose at that point. 
That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Josh Caldwell, Addie Dove, and Jim Cooney. You can get their podcast Walk About the Galaxy wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a story idea for the show or a question for our scientists, send it in. You can email me here at areweTheryet at wmfe.org or find us on Facebook. Just search for Are We There Yet Podcast or we're on Twitter at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.